Hello and welcome to a special episode of the Wheel Europe podcast. I'm Connor Lovell, Wheel's legal reporter in Europe. Today I'm joined by Jessica Walker and James Hollingshead, a partner and associate, respectively, with Latham and Watkins Restructuring Practice. Hi, Connor. Thank you very much for having us. Hi, Connor. Pleasure to be here. Today we'll be discussing the future of the company voluntary arrangement relative to the Part 26A restructuring plan and asking, is the CBA here to stay? So James, let's start with talking about court processes. Can you tell us a bit about the 26A and the CBA and how the processes are in court slightly different? Sure. Um, so of course, with the restructuring plan, because it does follow quite a similar approach to the scheme of arrangements, um, you do have still the two court hearings. So you have your convening and your, and your sanction hearing. Um, I suppose the one major distinction Distinction with the scheme uh, is that ability for cross-class cram-down, provided that certain conditions are met. Um, on contrast with the CBA, that's sitting in the Insolvency Act, um, and that has very little court involvement, we would say, unless, of course, it's challenged. And we are seeing a lot more CBAs being challenged these days. But there's no court sanction hearing as such, as you'd see in RP. And one important thing to mention on CVA challenges is that while a lot of them are challenged, very few of them actually end up in court. That's right, yeah. Of course, because quite often they would settle, right? Exactly. Thanks. You mentioned creditor challenges, which clearly is an important factor to consider for a debtor thinking of using one of these processes. Given the, the double court hearing process, do restructuring plans invite a greater challenge risk? So I think the first thing to point out is, as James said, is that court involvement is is a necessary requirement in a restructuring plan. So there is an existing forum for a creditor who isn't happy with the terms of the restructuring plan to, um, to, to put their case forward. There is a hearing already listed. Uh, every creditor has the opportunity to be heard at that hearing. So there is a, a ready stage on which a creditor can present their dissatisfaction with the terms that are being proposed. The distinction with the CVA is that in order to have that stage, a creditor needs to instigate their own legal proceedings and start a formal challenge. So there is a, a distinction in the, almost the amount of admin that needs to be done by the creditor in order to have the platform from which they can voice their concerns. And as, as we were saying just then, you know, just because you started the proceedings in a CVA challenge doesn't necessarily mean that you actually get to court to have them heard. Mm -hmm. Whereas with a restructuring plan, there is always that forum. So there is always the event. The, the challenge, as it were, is, is not so much a challenge as a, 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 an ability for a creditor to voice their feelings about the proposals. Whereas a CVA challenge is exactly that. It is a challenge brought by a creditor on grounds of either material irregularity or unfair prejudice to the terms of the CVA with a, usually a request that the CVA is overturned. Yeah, and we have seen some recent challenges where they've tried to sort of almost dig up a third head of challenge on a jurisdictional basis. But as we've seen in New York, that's been sort of robustly uh, rebuffed. So it seems that both processes can invite creditor challenge, but perhaps at different stages. What about in terms of preparation by the debtor and the debtor's counsel prior to either process? Is one more expensive or is it that they end up attracting a similar amount of preparation? I think it's probably the latter, Connor. I think um, in terms of the preparation you would do for an RP or the preparation you would do for a CVA, it's quite similar on the advisor side. You'd have to be speaking to creditors and working out who's likely to be voting in favour and, and what the commercials of any particular deal might be. 
In terms of the legal paperwork, it's fairly voluminous uh, in both cases. I suppose you could say on an RP, you're definitely going to have to pay court fees and you're going to have to instruct a barrister. But given the point we've already mentioned, which is that a CVA is quite often challenged, and you'll quite end up quite often would end up doing the preparatory work for that as well. So you're likely to have barristers' fees and you'd have nobody or supervisor fees as well. So I think we think by and large, sort of preparation and cost-wise, it's, it's going to be fairly similar. I think that's right. And the, the, the other important thing is that when proposing a CVA, for example, one shouldn't assume that you're not going to be challenged and not going to end up in court. So while the, the majority of CVAs do not end up in court, it certainly is prudent to budget for the possibility that you will. So when thinking about the likely cost of the restructuring overall, mm. those are costs that should be taken into account and not ruled out. That makes a lot of sense. James, could you tell us a bit more about timing? Is there a distinction here? I suppose the one distinction maybe just thinking about general timing and process points is although you might say that each process is likely to take around the same length of time, two to three months or something, one potential advantage you have from the CBA perspective is that it will become effective following the vote. And so if you are a company which is struggling operationally, you would then be into your compromised rents from that period onwards. So even if there were a challenge, you're still operating under the terms of the CBA, which you'd say is quite helpful. Um, and you know, challenges might, might last for quite some time as well. So it could be a while before that gets finally adjudicated upon. Whereas I suppose conversely, the benefit of a restructuring plan is the certainty subject to appeal exactly. once the sanction hearing has been completed. Exactly. Thanks, Jessica. You've told us a bit about the grounds for CBA challenges. Could you tell us what grounds landlord creditors have um, when challenging a Part 26A plan? How have the courts reacted? Of course. So I think one of the best examples is probably Snowden's judgment in Virgin. Um, and you had the landlords there arguing sort of against cross class cram down on the basis that the no worse off test was not satisfied. And that was that was primarily on the basis that they were saying the EOS was unreliable because there had been no market testing. And you could tell that Snowden had done some, some reading up on valuations as a few, few textbooks quoted in the judgment, but he came to the conclusion that the starting point is there is no absolute obligation to market test. And he was thinking about whether you know, market testing in that particular case would have provided a material, a materially more reliable valuation and concluded that it, it wouldn't and that, you know, in the nature of things, valuations are likely to produce a range of outcomes and it's for the professional advisors to identify the most likely outcome. So I think one of the sort of takeaways from Virgin is that point around there's no absolute obligation, but if you could market test, you probably would still say, I think it's better, would be the gold standard still. Um, but if you are a challenging creditor, then it's going to be quite important to be able to present um, reliable and sufficient evidence to the court um, as to any contrary valuation. And it's very clear that Snowden thought, we, he was very keen to ensure that the utility of part 26A wasn't undermined um, by sort of back and forth between the parties on the valuation, although he did hear significant um, evidence on it from multiple witnesses across several days. 
And I think that, that that's that's key in the in the um, restructuring plan hearings. There is, as we said before, this existing platform from which creditors can hear, have their voices heard as to the the veracity of the valuation and what the what the what their their interpretation of the valuation actually is. So you've mentioned valuation. How is valuation used in the CBA? Is it a similar process to the Part Twenty Six? A company proposing a CBA will need to go through a very similar thought process and exercise in ascertaining value in order to present in the CBA what the relevant alternative in that case will be, whether that is administration, whether it is a liquidation, whether it's an alternative sale process. And so the process that you go through in either a restructuring plan or a CBA when it comes to establishing what the valuation of the company in the various different circumstances will be is very similar and equally in a CBA if there is a challenge that ends up in court then the company and the various advisors who provided the advice need to be ready to be with to to withstand the questioning and the cross-examination that will go um, that will go with that challenge at the time so certainly while you know you hear an awful lot about valuations in the here in the hearings for restructuring plans it is an important consideration no matter what the restructuring tool that you're using is and that would be the case with schemes as well um, depending again what, what, what you're actually restructuring and you know we, we talk a lot about um, restructuring tools to restructure lease obligations but in reality we mustn't forget that all of these restructuring tools are there to restructure whatever liabilities that the, the relevant company has um, so, you know, when we're talking about valuations, it might be a, a valuation of a lease portfolio or of a company in an administration compared to the amount that landlords would get in the relevant restructuring plan or CVA. But it might also be the case that there is just a, a reduction of, of general debts being um, imposed or proposed through the restructuring plan and CVA. And the valuation evidence will be equally as important in those circumstances. Thanks, Jessica. As well as valuation, fairness is a key concept that features in both schemes and Part 26A. James, could you tell us how the courts have applied a fairness test in recent 26A and CBA cases? Yes, of course, Connor. So again, we sort of move back to, to the Virgin restructuring plan. Um, and I think we've probably contrast this with the new look CBA challenge. I think they're the most helpful cases perhaps. The judges go into quite some depth around, around this fairness question. Um, I think the key takeaway for me from Virgin is it's very clear that an in-the-money class can allocate the benefits of the restructuring and cram down an out-of-the-money class. And it'd be very difficult if you are an out-of-the-money creditor um, to, to challenge that and argue against any form of cross-class cram down or the, or the sanctioning of the RP because as long as the evidence is clear that you are out of the money, the judge essentially says, you'd be lucky to get anything out of this plan. So the fact that you get something makes it very hard for the dissenting creditor to argue that the plan is unfair. And there's sort of a, a sort of corollary to that, which is that differential treatment between creditors is permitted so long as it is justified and that follows scheme case law i think saying essentially as long as there's good commercial reasons um although the court will investigate those reasons and want to hear evidence on them 
that can provide the justification for differential treatments. So in Virgin Active, you had the secured creditors um, potentially permitting the shareholders to retain value, even though landlords were being compromised. And that was on the basis that there was good commercial reasons because frankly, the shareholders were putting in new money and were also supporting and enabling restructuring. In New Look, in the CVA challenge, Zaccaroli expanded upon similar themes. So it's clear from that that a CVA may provide for different outcomes for different groups of creditors. And again, differential treatment is permitted. Um, and whether such differential treatment is unfair has to be assessed according to all the circumstances. So I think that's quite a similar way of looking at the court's discretion uh, to sanction on RP, where they would assess all the circumstances, sort of a similar approach. It's also confirmed there that there's no rigid test for basic fairness, particularly in the landlord context. So there's no basic test which requires a landlord to receive at least market rent or the contractual rent should be interfered with to the minimum extent necessary. And it was also made clear that there's no automatic unfairness caused by the votes of an unimpaired class, if you like, clinching the vote or swinging the vote, although it will be a highly relevant factor when considering any unfair prejudice challenge. Um, so again, we come back to the theme that what is unfair will depend upon all the circumstances. And Zaccarelli set out some relevant factors in the New Look case. One of those was whether there was a fair allocation of assets available within the CVA between the compromised creditors and other subgroups. And this is interesting because the judge did acknowledge that this would require the court to consider, for example, whether a different allocation would have been possible. And that crosses over a little bit into, um, into restructuring plans, where we see Trower in deep ocean when he was thinking about cross-class cramdown considering whether the court should consider whether the plan contained a fair allocation of what was termed the restructuring surplus between different groups of creditors. I guess it's potentially a slight departure from existing case law in relation to schemes, where you typically see the courts um, try not to overly concern itself with whether the scheme is the best or the fairest scheme but rather deferring to the decision and the commercial judgment of the creditors through their meetings. But of course, that's not so easily transposable across into a restructuring plan where you have the possibility of a dissenting class being crowned. Okay, it does appear that there's a significant overlap in both processes. In what sort of circumstance would you expect a debtor to opt for one over the other? Both, both a restructuring plan and a CVA are valuable tools to restructure liabilities. And which one you use will depend on the circumstances at hand. If you have, if you're just restructuring unsecured liabilities, then it may be that a CVA is, is, is sufficient for your, for your requirements. Um, <clears throat> if you're also looking to restructure secured liabilities, then you may look to combine a CVA with a scheme, or you may look to have a, a to, to propose a restructuring plan. If you need to do cross-class cram down, then you may look to a restructuring plan, or you may also use a CVA, depending on what the class, what classes in inverted collars we're talking about, because one of the things that Zaccarelli made very clear in the New Look case is that in a CVA, classes don't come into it. There is the one class, which is all of the creditors of the company who are entitled to vote on the CVA. So it is, it, it isn't, as James was saying, it isn't a different or a, a different um, or a higher 
level of fairness required in one over the other. They are overlapping and you can see that from the judges looking at the case law from schemes, restructuring plans and CVAs mm -hmm. when they are hearing challenges to CVAs or restructuring plans or schemes. And the, the distinctions between certainly the CVA as opposed to a restructuring plan and a scheme comes down to the fact that you do not have separate classes in a CVA. There is just the one class. Um, and that is all of the company's creditors who are entitled to vote. And that includes secured creditors for any unsecured portion of their debt. So that, that important distinction means that the analysis when it comes to fairness will differ because there is a practical difference needed when you're analyzing the difference between classes and whether individual classes have voted in favor or against the proposals in a scheme or in a restructuring plan. And where you've got a CVA where all of the creditors vote on one proposal within which certain groups of creditors have been treated differently, which again was made clear in New Look and previously in Debenhams um, and in various other cases is permitted under the legislation, which is extremely broad and in fact specifies that certain creditors are to be treated differently if they are secured or preferential. So both Virgin Active and New Look survived extensive challenges by, by creditors. Turning now to schemes and plans that were not sanctioned by judges, could you tell us a bit more about Hurricane Energy and Amiga? So in Hurricane, um, we had cross-class cram down failing and Daccaroli set out two key reasons for why he wasn't prepared to accept cross-class cram down and then exercise his discretion to sanction the RP. And this takes us back to, again, the relevant alternative, which can be quite a fertile ground of challenge. So in Hurricane, Condition A was not satisfied because based on the evidence, the court found that the shareholders would in fact be worse off in the true relevant alternative. So you have the company which argued that the most likely relevant alternative was an immediate liquidation. The court found that essentially in the extended wind down scenario, there was a realistic possibility that the shareholders would actually retain some value in the company and that Hurricane could dis potentially discharge its obligations to bondholders and then there would be some equity left for the shareholders. And therefore, when you contrast that with an RP, when the shareholders essentially being diluted down to 5%, Zachary was not, was not satisfied that the shareholders would be um, no worse off in the relevant alternative. But then he went further, which I think is quite interesting. And he said, even if condition A for cross-class cram down had been satisfied, he would still have refused to exercise his discretion to sanction the scheme. And I think that refusal to exercise discretion does lay down a marker. And it is saying essentially, where you're seeking to use an RP where there's no immediate prospect of insolvency, I think advisors and companies are going to have to pay particular attention to the evidence they put in as to that relevant alternative and as to the overall structure of the restructuring. We also saw the Amigo scheme. We saw Mr Justice Miles, again, not being convinced on the, on the, the appropriate comparator there, not being convinced that Amigo would enter immediate insolvency and that rather he thought that a negotiation of the restructuring um, was, was perhaps more likely to be the relevant alternative. And so that is another example where we have an overlap, I guess, between the three different tools and the judges 
taking debtors and to task to ensure that that they are convinced that they should be sanctioning uh, a scheme or an RP. So looking to the future, certain of the government's COVID-related protections for tenants are going to fall away over the coming months. Could government plans to introduce binding arbitration for tenants and landlords prevent some debtors pursuing a CBA or a structuring plan? We now have the draft rules for the arbitration process, as the government has published the Commercial Rent Coronavirus Bill, and the bill is currently at the committee stage. Now, this arbitration process will be for protected rent only, which is that rent attributable to the period between the 21st of March 2020, when we locked down, and the 18th of July 2021 for England, or the 7th of August 2021 for Wales, or, in both cases, the earlier date on which restrictions on the tenant sector were lifted, and those periods are set out in the Code of Practice, which the Government has also published alongside the Bill. And that Code of Practice, incidentally, also sets out the basis on which um, agreements should be reached between tenants and landlords if they're able to reach agreement without going to arbitration and also includes guidance as to how the arbitrator is likely to reach a decision and what information needs to be provided to the arbitrator. Now, I'm not going to go into full details of the arbitration process now, but to answer your question, um, the tenant, who's more likely to be the one proposing, obviously, a a CVA or an RP, uh, they may not propose a CVA or an RP or a scheme while the arbitration process is ongoing or for 12 months after an award is granted. So it's not an absolute prohibition on tenants proposing these proposals, but it is not intended that the landlord should be denied the opportunity to collect the rent that is payable following the arbitration. However, there are no similar restrictions on a tenant proposing a CVA, an RP or a scheme where an agreement on rent for that protected period has been reached out of arbitration, even where the parties have followed the government's code of practice in order to reach that agreement. Thank you, Jessica and James, for your time today and your excellent insight into both CBAs and Part 26As. And thank you again to all of our listeners. Thanks ever so much, Connor. It's been fascinating to talk through. And um, I think we're all looking forward to seeing how this area develops. Yep, certainly exciting area of law to keep an eye on. And it's been a pleasure speaking with you today. So thanks very much for having us.